one. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Adela Marcy Unplugged. I'm your host for the most, as always, Adela Marcy. I hope you are having a kick-ass week at home, wherever you are walking around or listening to this, maybe even watching it, who knows. Today, as we said, we are approaching the season finale and of course the series finale of this epic podcast. And of course, I had to bring in a heavyweight. I couldn't leave you guys just not wanting more. The one, the only, Scott Dickers from The Onion. Yes, motherfuckers, theonion.com is right here in the house. And I am so grateful to have him in on the show for simply uh, simply because I read his book, How to Be Funny, and I freaking, well, I had to write funny, really. Um, always butcher the name of the book. Great. How to write funny.com as well. And Scott graciously said yes to being here. I'm a huge fan of his work, so about time we got him on and, you know, rock and roll. And Scott, thanks for being here. It is my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. Oh, man, I'm so glad that you got to come in. I'm just like, ah, so happy. Fanboying <laughs> here at the moment. So, guys, before we begin, as always, sponsor shout-outs as we have. This episode is sponsored by HowToWriteFunny.com, which, again, is Scott's course and website where you can find out more about how to write funny. I recommend getting all of his books, get the audiobooks version as well, and get the course because each layer, believe it or not, is a little bit deeper. And by the time we finish this interview in the next couple of days, I would have actually gone through his course as well. So I can tell you firsthand, the audiobook, the book, and everything else is written, that is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to shut the fuck up right now because this is brilliant. I'm going to get into my first question more than anything is, Scott, you're freaking write brilliantly. You have like an almost incredible satirical style of writing at times. My question for you, as you go into the book as well, when did you first discover that you could write funny? Well, first of all, I should say that there's an incredibly skilled team of writers who write yes. the Onion stories. And while I was kind of the first writer and hired the writers and trained them, I didn't write everything. And a lot of the writing is largely committee written. You pool your, your brain power to try to come up with the funniest possible stuff. And if you've read my books and you've gotten deep into them in the third book, I go into how you write with a group and maximize the power of that group. All that was done at The Onion. I started out you know, many, many years before The Onion writing little stories, writing little comic strips. I made little books. Uh, when I was a kid, I would buy those little, you know, spiral notebooks mm -hmm. and I would make funny little books with little pictures. And, you know, I was probably the only one who thought they were funny. My grandmother enjoyed them and my mother was very proud of me, but that was about it. And so when you ask, like, when did I discover I wrote funny? Well, <laughs> I didn't. My writing was very, very bad. And so... The, the difference between me and everybody else whose writing is bad, because everybody writes poorly. It's, it's just not a skill that comes naturally to anybody. I loved it. I, I loved the attention I got from it. I loved that my grandmother loved it. And that, that fueled me and it kept me going and it kept me producing more books. And of course, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And fast forward some, I don't know, 15 years and I'm graduating high school and I've had a comic strip in my high school newspaper that won like a statewide journalism award in Wisconsin. Very proud of that. Very, very proud of that. And I write funny, I don't know what you call them, little quips in fellow students' yearbooks that all the other students think are funny. 
I'm writing little movies that I'm making. I'm writing little radio plays that I'm producing with my friends. I'm writing little stories, still making, you know, little uh, comic strips and comic books. And I'm an insatiable creator. And at that point, if I look back on some of that work, is it funny by that point? You know, it's, you can maybe see some potential in it because I've been doing it for so, so many goddamn years. I've got to be at least pretty good. Yeah. So I get out of high school. I'm like, how am I going to make a living at this? This is the only thing I want to do. It's the only thing I'm interested in. So I start with comic strips. They're inexpensive to produce. They pay you to put a comic strip in a newspaper. And, and so I came up with a bunch of comic strips and I sent them away to all the big newspaper syndicates. And I got a ton of rejection letters back. And that was just kind of my pattern for several years as I worked at McDonald's and temp jobs and everything else. And eventually, finally, I got a comic strip printed in a newspaper. And then I got another comic printed in a newspaper. And eventually I got a comic strip printed daily in a college newspaper that became really popular. And that was around 1987. And I would say at that point, I, I discovered <laughs> that, hey, may, maybe I'm good at this. People like this comic strip, it's working. I hated comic strips. I thought they were all terrible. I would look at the Sunday funnies, I wouldn't laugh. They all seemed so hackneyed, so predictable. Yeah. So I made a comic strip that really subverted the genre and people responded to that, they liked it. And I started to make a lot of money doing my comic strip it was like my full-time job. I still had a side job at a radio station, but I was making good money doing comedy and I was creating a big fan base. And that I guess I would say that's when I knew. That's pretty awesome. So that was basically the moment. And by the way, what yeah. I love about that is the fact that I want everyone to really embody this. You will suck at the beginning, but it's, you do it for the love. That's how you get better. And kind of paralleling this more into like the copywriting world, what we do, because it's such a hard line that I have about it, is don't come into this world for the money. Come in for the love and you'll make the money. Like, yeah, I, as contemporaries of mine that I remember when I, because I've been doing this since I was 18 professionally. I've been doing this since I was 12 just as a career, wow. like psychology is my fascination of how people think. Um, and in that same world, what I found was there were people in that tenure that like between 20 or even 18 to like time I was 30, for, like those 12 years of hard graft barely scraping by before I even hit the six figure mark. Um, Cause you know, I did well for others, but I didn't do well for myself. So I was undercharging what I found was I stayed in for the love. So now I'm on the other side of it. I can charge more money, but I can also deliver because I, I took the time to study, understand and build a reputation. But I also took the time to suck. They're like, you know, you, everyone has a sucky time, whether it's out on a stage like a stand-up comic or in your own personal journals as a writer, it's, we all start out and start getting stronger. Now, my question really kind of like delves into that. And by the way, I do want to touch upon this. I did make that error at the very beginning. I do, I'm glad that you did correct me. There is a staff writing group and there is basically an incredible way of pulling people together. But for you specifically, um, it's your training that I always go back, back to. It's like, he was the dude that put this together, but kind of going into the idea of um, opening up the doors and letting other people write for you. I know you're going to this with book three, but getting other people to write for you, just that idea of letting go 
and letting someone else run with an idea of yours. Did you ever have trouble with that? Or was that something that you were very okay with passing the torch on to? Yeah, that's always a challenge. And I want to come back to that because I want to respond to something you just said sure. about the love of doing it and succeeding because you love it. I think it's possible to succeed without loving something. Yeah. If you are just nose to the grindstone, painful work, and you just like, you're in prison camp for 10 years doing something that you hate, you can still get good at it. (laughs) But it really helps to love it. Because like you said, you're doing extracurricular stuff, you're researching it, you're having fun with it. It's like you learn so much better that way. But I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm German. And the Germans know how to succeed at something, even if you don't want to, you just nose to the grindstone, you forge ahead, you plow ahead, you hate every minute of it, and you do it. So not particularly proud of that heritage, but it's just part of me. And it's, it's, I've used that, like I've definitely used that. But as far as, so back to delegating. So as far as delegating goes, it's always painful. It's always difficult to pass something off and trust someone else to run with something. So I go into in great detail kind of how I do that and what my strategies have been. I think I've gotten really good at it over the years. It's really important to make sure that the people who you're delegating to feel completely empowered and they can disagree with you and they can fight you and they can push their own ideas. And it's really important to allow them to suck in the beginning too, because they're never gonna learn or get better if you don't let them sort of go through that failure gauntlet. You can't puppeteer them in the beginning and make sure everything they do is perfect and expect them to ever get anywhere. And then they feel like their success is their own because they've paid their dues. And yeah, that beginning part is always really painful when they're doing work that you know you could do better and you're sitting there watching somebody do something essentially in your name worse than how you could do it. Now at The Onion, one thing that we would always do is the editor, and that was me in the beginning, would always like edit and change whatever anybody did. But the trick then is sort of making them feel like a part of it and giving them a say and sort of showing them what you're doing. Well, I'm doing this because of this, this, and this. Do you see why I'm doing this? Okay. So, and then they get to share in the reward. Like if something they write goes out and it's funny and people like it, they're proud of it. And they, yeah. they learn next time, oh, okay, I'll do it differently. And over time they get better. Yeah, because it basically gives them an idea of that post, like let go. Now, just, I think I might've just posed my question a little bit slightly off there, because that was gold. But what I wanted to know from your own personal perspective was letting go from the emotional standpoint. Because like- The emotional part of delegating? Yeah, because like the part that I've had in the past where I've had junior writers when I started out was, it was that you're writing essentially my name. And then eventually it was like that want, the emotional want to control and then having to calm that because at the very beginning, I was very angry with like the people I worked with. And then I started to calm down as I started to realize that the more I delegate, the more I let go, I can actually be okay with this and let go out. Like, did you ever have anything around that? Or was it very much the, you taught them everything, got them out of the way. Sorry, if sorry if I'm repeating myself. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't recall ever feeling particularly emotional about it. Like to me, it's sort of uh, just a smart business decision. You have to delegate if you're gonna scale. There's no way that you can keep writing everything yourself. So 
you know, one of the best sayings about making movies is great directing is great casting. So a director doesn't want to have to direct anybody. They don't want to have to say, you know, say it like this and feel this. They just want to cast the right person so the right person can walk on the set and just be the character and they don't have to do anything. Director can focus on where to put the camera or whatever. Same thing with delegating. Like if you've picked the right person, and this is one thing that's good about letting people fail. If you've picked the wrong person, they're gonna fall on their face and they're not gonna be able to figure it out. And you'll know immediately, okay, they're wrong for this, get lost. Yeah. If you pick the right person, they're gonna fail and they're gonna learn from it and they're gonna say, oh, okay, and then they'll get better. And then you know you've got something. And so to me, that's never been like an emotional cost. It's, it's really a pleasure to me to see that process, to see somebody realize they could be better, get better, and then eventually see them get better than me. Like that's the ultimate joy is when I know I can pass the football to somebody who's actually going to run faster than me and get more touchdowns than me. That's incredible. It's so yeah. satisfying. I agree. I agree. That's one of the very favorite feelings I have with clients and like with junior writers when they graduate with like with me. It's like, yay, you can do this. Let's go. Uh, so that's really interesting because again, this is something that did in my young years really stop me. I never really, I've never really been able to ask that question to other writers that I know because a lot of the writers I know are kind of like solo acts. Right. It's kind of really interesting to see it from that perspective. Um, and kind of like shifting gears entirely, not entirely, but mostly here, because again, curiosity what inspires you like genuinely because like, i'm very curious about your inspirational process like what gets you laughing what is it that you watch what is it that you do very curious about those i think on a deep level the main thing that inspired me in doing comedy for most of my life was trying to get the love and attention that you get from doing funny uh, products yeah. People laugh, they like you. That's a drug, it's a powerful drug. Any yeah. comedian can tell you that the first time they got a laugh, they were in love. It's literally like getting a hit of crack. Yeah. And so that fueled me for most, most of my career. And it still fuels me, I still enjoy it, it's great. On a more superficial level, another thing that really inspires me, really lights a fire under me and makes me feel more ambitious and want, want to do better is seeing other comedy that's really bad. Ooh. Like work that is professional, it's out there, it's supported by advertising, it has a big audience, whatever. And I just think it sucks. For example, like I was saying, the, the daily comic strips that I would see in the Sunday funnies. Yeah. I was mystified by how these, these comics could be successful and have fans because they were so terrible. And my thinking was, well, I could do better than that. Like they suck. And that just really fueled me. That's just like, I'd stay up all night, like writing comics. Cause it just made me feel empowered. It made me feel like I could, I could really do this. And so with the onion, same thing, I would look at other humor publications like mad magazine or the national lampoon. And I would see what they did. And I would recognize when they were great, but I would also recognize when they would make mistakes and that would really fuel me and make me want to do better and come up with a, a, a magazine, a humor publication that would last longer, that would 
be funnier, that would hit the jugular harder, more often, be more consistent. And so that's been a big one, just like bad comedy. And then on an even more superficial level, there is some good comedy that I like that inspires me on some level. And it makes me feel like, oh my God, I wish I'd thought of that. Or I wish I was as good as that person. Any and that makes me work a little harder. What's is that, that? Is there any particular good and bad like professional comedians that you've seen like stand-up shows and you're like, man, no. Or like, yes, this is just brilliant. Like have there been any- Yeah, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of, I watch a lot of stand-up specials and I don't even crack a smile the whole time. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, the only reason this seems funny is because of the laugh track. Like take away the laugh track and this this person sucks. They're-, they're Is there any particulars? We're not throwing shade. I'm just very curious if there's any. Yeah, I honestly, it literally is most of them. Oh. You know, so I'm a tough room. So nothing really makes me laugh. But I can tell you the good ones, you know, the ones that do make me laugh, who I appreciate, are uh, Norm MacDonald. Yes. Bill Burr mm -hmm. uh, are the top ones. Um, Patton Oswalt. Yep. Um, and George Carlin. I, you know, one thing that really makes me sad is not enough comics nowadays know who George Carlin is. And it really makes me sad because it's, it's a travesty because he's one of the greatest in my books. Easily, yeah, if, I, he was, if I had a top 10, he's in that top 10. Absolutely. And then going back further, um, I know we are not supposed to mention his name anymore, but Bill Cosby was- Oh, in his day. In his, in his heyday, his, his stand-up was just- Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Brutal. Beautiful. Um, and then going back even further, Red Fox, mm -hmm. never not funny. Uh, Richard Pryor, amazing. Classic. And then, and then there's the the classics, the people who are like in the pantheon. Everybody recognizes them as great, and I'm no different. People like Jerry Seinfeld, Eddie Murphy, you know, people like that. So, yeah. I'd be fair David Letterman is another I, one. I would, I would uh, be even even Jay Leno. I'd put him in there as well. I would like to see. I would love your opinion on what do you think of Dave Chappelle. Oh, I think he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got him in my, like, I think I've got him like right up there. Same with Louis CK. Like I know a lot of people bag on Louis, but Louis as a comedian is incredible. Yeah. His stuff, like, again, we're not supposed to speak his name anymore, but he in his prime was amazing. And yep. he really screwed this thing up with the me too. He did not handle that well, but we did not know. Yeah. So uh, Dave Chappelle is another good one. And I'm key, I keep thinking of, of other ones that I really respect and appreciate. So Steve Martin, yes, Andy oh, Kaufman, uh, Chris Rock, amazing. Mm, Chris uh, Rock, I have a, see, Chris Rock, I only like him for uh, until 2003. Bigger and Blacker was the last good special of his I really enjoyed. Everything really? that I just haven't laughed. I haven't even cracked a smile at his stuff. I, I really enjoyed his recent one. So, it, you know, actually mm -hmm. I appreciate the craft and it makes me laugh. And I know a lot of comics do sort of stale as they get older or they, they get too sour, but he's still really focusing on the, the laughs, I think. And that's, yeah. that's great. Oh, that's why I have the respect for him. Like Chris, hands down in my, in my books, one of the greatest joke writers and comedians great out joke, there. Yeah. Um, someone I actually do actually will throw in there is Joe Rogan. Like, I actually really like Rogan's stand-up. Like, um, he's a great Yeah, I, he's one that I've watched his special and it doesn't really do anything for me. Yeah, it um, really, again, depends on audience and crowd. But yeah. the, the one that really kind of upset me slightly is Russell Peters, because he does one good special and one bad special. 
Oh, like, okay. That's yeah. how I've always I haven't seen him. I haven't seen him. Yeah. So, and you know, all of my heroes are men because I'm old and before about 20 years ago, there weren't a lot of female comics. No. Um, but I do like Sarah Silverman and um, she's probably my top um, female comic, but I'm a guy. So I respond more to guy comics. Like I know a lot of women who only watch female comedians because they do so much reference humor about getting their period and stuff like that and sex and, and that they relate to that. They respond yeah. to it. I relate to the male comics. Yeah. So that's just my personal thing. You Dude, know? It, it's each their own. Like I, I'm a little bit younger than you. Actually, I'm a, yeah, I am quite younger than you. I was going to say a little bit younger than um so yeah i kind of i do like both men and i I like both comics but honestly i totally get it like i most of my comics that i enjoy that i relate to men um but i can't put past eliza schlesinger i've always got to put eliza on my list because she for a while wasn't a tech she was brilliant the way that she did everything um but i will throw out there was one other comedian that came to mind and again, we're talking comedy here, so my brain's just like rushing through like his name, and I cannot remember. Yeah, you'll hit me later on. Um, Give me some details about him. Maybe we'll think of him. We'll just think of him. I actually already remembered Patrice O'Neill, probably one of the, in my opinion, one of the most controversial people. But I loved him. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him. I don't think I've seen. Oh, him. I, I would recommend it. Basically, he was the one comic that Bill Burr, as he says in Met, he was whenever if you walked into a room and patrice was in that room bill was like ah shit i gotta get out of here like but the moment he thought that that, that fascinates me the people who like are just so inherently funny they can't not be funny yeah um john panette was one of those he's a comic who died tragically um a few years ago but um one of these people that just could do no wrong just always incredibly funny yeah it's really interesting because you also have that with uh bill hicks for a while like Bill, I do like, but to me, he was kind of like the, he would have been the next coming of George Carlin, in my opinion. Yeah, he could have been. Yeah. He could have been, but I still, Carlin was the, in my opinion, Carlin was probably one of the kings of comedy for just so much humor and keeping relevant for like 50 years, 40 years, I think it was. No, it's amazing how long he lasted. Um, he, he was sort of like uh, the new Mark Twain, like Mark Twain invented stand-up comedy. And I think Mark Twain's stuff was probably a little more intelligent like carlin actually is he's kind of up there telling a lot of dick jokes and fart jokes and stuff like that but it's funny like you you can't deny it and some of his subtext is really great um but it's not very literary and i I feel like people like louis ck and bill burr obviously stand on george carlin's shoulders and wouldn't be who they are without carlin you know especially louis he wrote his uh i think he did the memorial service or did the eulogy for george who did uh louis louis ck oh yeah i don't that, that makes sense crazy yeah um again, as you can as you can guess huge comic fan as well as like the, i used to be a stand-up comedian so that's why i have oh, so okay. much love for this as well like um stagecraft and funniness because it's me, fascinating art and oh craft. definitely one of the things i really loved about your book specifically was that you had like 11 the first book of course because like that's the most fresh in my memory because the one i read the last because i was going through it again you were talking oh. about the 11 different types of filters that you have around um especially prose when you're going through it, you actually have different filters that you can look through one of the idea one of the thoughts that i actually had when, like Sorry, my brain is like ping-ponging off of three different thoughts at the same time. So the first question I have essentially is, with those 11 that are there, which ones do you mostly find yourself gravitating towards as yourself as a person when you write? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. So 
Yeah, these 11 funny filters are what I reduced all of comedy to. So there's 11 different ways to make something funny. And you just take an unfunny idea, your subtext, your opinion or whatever, and you filter it through one of these 11 funny filters and you get a joke on the other end. And everybody kind of has a different sense of humor. They have different funny filters that they favor and go to more often. And for me, my favorites and the ones I go to most often are irony, shock, and uh, and madcap. Those are my three favorites. And I think those all together are a great combination. Some of my favorite comedy has inherent irony. It has uh, amazing madcap, like physical humor is, is a lot of comedians don't do it. In fact, a lot of standups, we're talking about standup, don't even use their bodies on stage. They just stand there and tell their jokes. Jim Carrey, how could we Yeah, Jim Carrey is using his body and he's, yeah. he's, he's a great madcap performer. Agreed. And I love that. So I'm thinking like Super Dave Osborne, you know, mm -hmm. Bob Einstein use shock and madcap and irony in his stuff. And I just thought his stuff was so funny, just like instant laughs every time I watched it. So those are kind of my go-tos. I, I try to use them all because I think the more you use, the more accessible your work is to a wider audience. Yeah. You because everybody has a sense of humor, but those are kind of my, my favorites, I would say. Oh, for sure. No, I agree with you. And for those that haven't actually gone through the books, please do check them out. Because again, the 11 funny filters are, of course, irony, character, reference, shock, hyperbole, parody, wordplay, analogy, madcap, metahumor, and misplaced focus. Because again, I have my notes up. Unlike my superpowers of remembering things, I actually had to get my notes up because again, I was like, when the fuck did I write them? Because um, I genuinely love that. Personally, for me, I still love, uh, irony's fun, but for me, it's shock, hyperbole, and wordplay, as well as analogy. Those are like, my favorite ones to really rely on. Um, yeah, I, it's like back and forth and stuff like that. But you always, what I started to do and unconsciously do was break down other comedians through these 11 filters and see which one they were most likely referencing. Yeah, yeah I like to do that too. The best comedians do mix it up. Yeah. And that's a joy to see. And they, they compound them. So they're using several at once often, which creates this like assault of humor stimuli that you can't help but laugh because it's just too much. You can't even process it. And then one we didn't mention that it doesn't like, it's, it's not one I go to like immediately. It's not my immediate knee jerk, but I always try to use it because it's so powerful and that is character. Yes. And my latest book in that series is all about that funny filter, how to write funny characters, because it was, there was so much more to say about it than just the short section in the first book yeah. that described all 11 funny filters. But I always try to do comedy through a character, write as someone else or, or write as a fake voice, like The Onion is a character, it's a fake voice of serious news, it makes it so much funnier than if it was just me out there saying stuff, you know? Exactly. And so it, I think that's a, an amazing one. Characters is the one that gave me the most freedom this year. Gave you the like most freedom. Oh, because for, for the longest time. So to give you an idea in like my industry as a copywriter, I have gone unknown for most of my career. Like I've literally like to the point where my business partner was doing the video sales letter for the promotion of our mentoring program. 
And he was like, dude, I was doing the research on you. Do you actually know who you are? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, there are case studies on you that you, that someone says your name, no one fucking knows who you are. But then they look at your case studies and go, wait, he's behind that. He's the guy that did this. So it builds up. I was like, yeah, because, you know, I, every time I put myself out there, I just get my own head and they disable it, whatever it is. But restarting to a new blog that we've got going, which is, of course, greatestcopywriteroflife.com, um, what we have there is the entire voice of that is not about me. It's about this character, this company called Greatest Copywriter Alive, about you becoming that person by essentially not making the same mistakes everyone else is making. Like, this is your shortcut. This is your shortcode. And personally, for me, using the character reference in all the, all the contents actually allow the other 10 filters that are out there to be far more supreme out there, hyperbole, more ridiculous than they can be because the reality is, yeah, you can hate on the blog, but you're not going to hate on, you're not really hating on me. You're hating on like a character I've created. That's um, really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. When, so, when it goes live, we're still like building right now. Like as, as a recording, this when it comes out, it should be good to go. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I will check it out. But um, yeah, yeah I, I agree that it's, a, it's such a powerful tool to put up a facade. And I do the same thing as you. Like I've always hidden behind a brand name or a character. And so I'm not a household name. Nobody knows who I am yeah. because I've always put the, the brand out there in front of me as a character because yeah. it was more it was a better way to be funnier <laughs> you know and now occasionally I do go out and I perform and I give talks and stuff and, and I'm myself and I'm getting more comfortable with that but it takes a long time to figure out who your character is like what's your persona you know yeah. and what you stand for as well I mean to be fair that's one of the biggest uh, breakthroughs I had was sitting down and actually answering this one question which is what makes me laugh and what makes me funny? And also, what do I want? How, who am I? Just answering these four questions gave me such depth in my writing and in my ability to just be. So anyone out there that's just thinking about this, feel free to go down that path. It'll, it'll help you. Um, one of the, so one of the things I did want to actually ask you when it really came down to um, not just so much inspiration and stuff like that, but it's just like routines and stuff. Is there like a specific routine? I'm not talking about business or work, just Scott himself do you have like a set routine of what you do every single day just to keep yourself, you know, happy more than anything else? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do that keeps me happy is more systemic. It's not stuff I do every day. It's like the foundations that I've built around me. So yeah. uh, I live alone. Like that's critical. I can't live with other people. I'm an introvert and I need my space, you know? <laughs> Sorry. So that keeps me happy. Like if I lived with other people, I wouldn't be happy. And I've done it. I can't do it. It just, I'm not happy. So what were you going to say? I was going to say, just because I fun. Oh, I think I'm getting a little feedback through your mic there. Um, it's all oh. good. We're, no, we're good. We're good. We're back. Good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to say was that the only thing, the reason I was giggling was I'm an extrovert, but I can't live with other people. Like I have to live alone. So it's me and my cats. That's just the way that we are. Pets I can handle. Humans. Yeah, I used to have cats. I can't even handle pets anymore because they bother me. They they yell at me and they jump on me, and I can't be having it. I know. I so <laughs> that's the like first time. it's like I'm I'm looking. I'm like after I've had these, maybe no more. <laughs> yeah, that's where I, I used to have a lot of cats. Actually, same as you. I had four four goddamn cats, and once they passed on, I was like, that's it. 
done. But then as far as like day to day, so, well, no, more, more foundational things. So diet is really important to me. Like I eat an incredibly healthy and clean diet because that keeps me help, healthy, keeps me happy. And I spent most of my early life eating like crap and I was sick all the time. And so very unhappy. Now that I eat better, and by that I just mean, I really just eat vegetables and clean meats and healthy fats, it's about all I eat. You know, occasionally I have a grain as a treat, uh, like oatmeal or rice or something, that's it. So, and I, I stay fit, like I exercise and I prioritize sleep. Sleep is the number one important thing in my life, getting good sleep. And sleep trumps all. You know, if I didn't get enough sleep, I'll sleep half the day to make up for it. You know, I don't care. It's like sleep is paramount. So that all those foundation, foundational things keep me happy. And then as in terms of, oh, you know what? You there still? I think my mic is better now, right? I, your mic's just switched over to like more of a spacey sound. So yeah, we've got you more condensed than forward, but. It was better before. Well, no, this this microphone is uh, more sound, so we don't get any background noise. This is brilliant, but you get this some better. Yeah, I thought this is the mic I'd been using the whole time. I apologize. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> the other one sounded closer, so it's all good. Like it will work. Okay, okay, good. We're all good. So, as far as routine, like day day to day routine, so I think about that stuff all the time. Like I think that's what it's all about. How do you manage your time? How do you do the things in a given day that are going to make you happy long term? so hard nowadays there's so many distractions there's so many netflix shows to binge and there's so many ways to just check out and obviously a happy life today is a sad life tomorrow <laughs> so i i really am focused on discipline and so i wake up and the first thing i do is i write i write for like three or four hours every day in the morning and that's the crux of my day and then the rest of the day, I'm doing other things that are work-related. I'm either doing more writing or I'm recording or editing audio or I'm making videos or something like that. And right now, in addition to the How to Write Funny books, I'm writing novels. And that's been incredibly rewarding and wonderful. And that keeps Same. me happy. And keep staying disciplined and, and continuing to work makes me happy. Like, I don't like... Uh, being lazy and I don't like just like hanging around doing nothing yeah if I do that too much I really all over time it makes me feel terrible about myself so I need to be productive and be doing things then as a reward occasionally I can sit around because I do enjoy sitting around watching a movie or reading a book or whatever so that's the reward that I save for later so that's basically my day uh, every day I don't observe holidays I don't go out I don't I don't do things, you know, I don't go to parties. Um, that's really, for me, it's all about the work, all yeah, about the work. That's really interesting because like a lot of stuff that you're saying is quite interesting to me in the sense of I do, it's kind of affirming for, for me more than anything because it's similar to what I have, hmm. um, but also gives me ideas on how to structure my day better because duh. But curious on the sleep thing more than anything, did you always like, what is the correct amount of sleep that you get now? And did it, did you always allocate that much sleep or did you do what most of us do which is just like screw around with your sleep cycle in your younger years and then eventually kind of settle as you get older yeah i mean everybody's different everybody requires a different amount of sleep and 
I remember I've always prioritized sleep. I used to, I had this thing, I had an evil stepdad when I was a kid and he used to come and wake us up at the crack of dawn, send us out to the fields to work. And I fucking hated that. I hated it. He'd come in, he'd turn on the lights. It was still dark. You know, he'd turn on the lights and he'd go, roust him out, you know, and he'd make you go out in the fields. And it was so brutal. I think in reaction to that, after he was out of the picture in high school, I would stay up late and I would watch David Letterman when his new, his show was on Late Night with David Letterman. And it was just a mind blowingly great show. And I needed it, I needed to watch that. But it would keep me up late. And so I'd sleep in and I would come to school late. So when I was a senior in high school, I scheduled three study halls in the morning so that I could sleep in and roll into school at like 10 or 11 or whatever. And I eventually got suspended for that because the principal was like, no, you have to come and sit in the study hall. And I'm like, fuck that. No, I'm staying up late, watching David Letterman is important. I'll come to school when I feel like coming to school. And that was probably the first era during which I started realizing how important sleep was to me and how critical it was. And then during my 20s and 30s, when I was starting up The Onion and building The Onion, it was a little different schedule. The Onion was a 24-7 job. It was so much work. And also I had my comic strip, you know, on the, on the side. And I had like my job at the radio station too. So I was very busy. Yeah. I would stay up until like three in the morning, pretty typically. And I would sleep until like 10 a.m. So I was getting about seven hours a night for most of my 20s and 30s. And that seemed to be enough. I would yeah. occasionally take a nap if I needed it, but that was about it. And now I'm on more of a sort of midnight to seven schedule. And it seems like seven is the sweet spot for me in terms of sleep. Yeah. If I occasionally get eight, it's it's a gift and I like it. But normally after seven, my body's like, okay, get up, time to get up. And but occasionally I'll get up too early. I'll get like five hours of sleep and I still have that morning fire so I can still write. But after I write, I'm exhausted and I take a nap. See that? So I'm making up and I'm doing this biphasic sleep. I do that too much, but I'm just listening to my body and I'm just doing what my body is telling me. And I feel like, what, what more can I do, you know? That is actually a very powerful thing and a lesson I would give to all entrepreneurs. Please make sure you do prioritize sleep because I, yeah. I, I'm i just a bit of a freak in the sense that since I was a child, I've slept between four to six hours. Like I just naturally oh, wake that's, up after I would kill. I would kill to be one of those people. There is a bit of a price to pay though, because like my body got, my body got so used to it for the first 29 years. And then after I hit like my 30, 31, cause I turned 32 this year, I kind of started to go into this place where I need more sleep. And that's also to do with like just sleep debt and, and recycling like my body, my biphasic sleep patterns, because again, I'm in a new era of my time, thirties to forties versus my twenties. So yeah. like, I feel like I'm still gonna end up sleeping six or seven hours anyway. Like six is kind of like my happy place. Seven is a gift. Eight is I'm cranky as can be. Don't talk to me that day. Um, yeah, the more I sleep, the more annoyed I get because I wake up and I go, I've literally wasted two hours of my day sleeping. <laughs> and you're my brain angry. wants- You're angry about the wasted time. Yeah, my brain, my, my brain I, is the definitely- more sleep, The more sleep I get, the happier I am. If I got 12 hours, I'd feel like a million bucks damn because that used to be my dad like the older my dad got the more he slept like um but then he changed his pants he had bad back so he couldn't sleep as much but when he was healthy and stuff he'd be sleeping like 10 to 12 hours a night and that was his happy for me and for me i was like dude too much i need like i gotta go do things um but 
that, that's something I will say that like you got to check out your sleep pattern and how healthy you're living as well because that's two things that you said that are really brilliant in your 20s you can get away with everything yeah once you hit 30 35 your body doesn't bounce back anymore like you have to actually work actively and I'm 56 now so I'm way past that time you know I got to be super careful and take care of myself or I'm falling apart there's no two ways about it Oh yeah. I mean, definitely. It's one of the things that I've actually made as more priorities, my health and listening to myself because yeah, it's good. again, in my twenties, like doing jujitsu, I'd hurt myself in the gym. I'm like, I'm back tomorrow. Train again. Let's go. I've got a, bro I've got a busted arm. I won't grip with this hand. I'll fight with my other one. Let's see what happens. Whereas now I get like the smallest knee injury and my body's like, we need to sit this one out, let it heal, go back, yeah. you know, do something else, go for walks, keep the stamina, but go back when you're ready. Um, and I, I do the same thing when it comes to work. Like if I'm yeah, working for every day for several weeks, which is very frequent for me, that happens a lot. I get to a point where I feel like, eh, I don't feel like working today. And so I don't, I just take the day off or I take a few days off. I go somewhere, you know, I go into the mountains or whatever. That's incredibly healing for me. And I find it's critical as a creative person, like, you have to replenish the input. You can't just keep outputting with no yes. input. You have to go and live your life and have experiences and stuff like that. So that again, I was going to say, that's another piece of advice that I hope everyone writes down because it's a piece of advice that I didn't learn for a long time. Yeah. Well, mainly, mainly because I couldn't leave the UK for 10 years when I was like, because of a passport snafu. Uh, <laughs> they basically ended up losing my original passport and then denying it for like six years. And then finally it came to light and finally everything kind of like sorted itself out. I mean, granted, I also, anyone that tells me that there isn't a sense for humor to God, the universe or whatever there is, I just tell them this story and I can tell you this will make you laugh. So 10 years trying to get this thing sorted, finally get it sorted uh july 2020 in the middle of a pandemic is when i get my passport back now if you don't find humor in hey i can travel when everyone else is nope you're gonna get it when no one is allowed to travel and it's early in the pandemic it's not it's not even yeah like you've got months ahead that's I, brutal i luckily managed to get out to amsterdam around the end of august so i managed to go to amsterdam and i freaking loved it but well, that's that's impressive it was a good, it was a good, like I literally, the first day I was there, I felt like I was home, literally felt like I was at home in Amsterdam, which was weird, but also nice because more travels coming, coming, is coming as we're opening up things, which is nice in the UK. But one of the things that really made me laugh about the whole idea, and I even laugh at the truth about living life is taking breaks. Cause if you don't, your brain will shut you down. Like, especially yeah. if you're going through like a high and emotional point of doing things, you got to take the time to reset the system. I mean, going to the mountains, any type of nature I'd say is good. It's beautiful. Yeah, I need it. Yeah, I agree. Um, actually, so I've got two questions I really want to ask you. And one of them I think is going to be a little bit longer. So I'll ask, I'll ask that second, but there's a different question first that's qualified. Uh -huh. Are you a movie person or no? Like, do you watch a lot of movies or no? I do. I used to watch a movie a day. It was like how I would end the day is watch a movie. Okay, so this okay. is going to be a good thing. I'm going to get you to answer that question second. But the first one, which I think is going to, we've answered a lot of it already, but I kind of just want to like summate it in this. And that is life will invariably kick you in the nuts, ovaries or whatever it is that causes you pain. It will kick you that. How do you keep consistent to either bounce back or make sure that it doesn't drag you under for too long? Because when I was younger, life hit me in the nuts. 
I'd either keep going until I need to sit down and I'd have to sit down for ages or sometimes I'd have to tap out and be like, right, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I need to deal with this. I'll be back on. What do you do and how do you deal with it? There's a couple of things I do. So if it's a major kick in the, in the teeth, nuts, kneecaps, wherever is most so painful. If it's major, then I try to like absorb it as much as possible, accept it, you know, go through the stages of grief quietly and stay focused and keep working and maybe channel it into my work somehow, talk about it, you know. If it's like a little kick in the teeth and you get so many of those, like death by a thousand cuts, yeah. especially in the comedy business, you get rejection and you get people who don't like your stuff, don't think it's funny, whatever. That stuff, I got some great advice really early on when I was first starting to do comic strips. I bought these books on how to draw a comic strip professionally. He talked about what equipment to buy and how to submit it, stuff like that. Very valuable books. The guy's name was uh, Ken Muse and his books are out of print, but they were spectacular. And they're kind of worthless now because comic strips, it's all web comics now anyway. Man. But his advice was, when you send your comic strip away to a newspaper syndicate and you get a rejection letter back, be proud, be excited because that means they saw your work and you're making an impact. You're, you're actually causing newspaper syndicate editors to do something. And he said, frame those things. Like he was over the top about how to be excited about it. Now I was a young kid. I was, you know, late teens, early twenties. When I saw that I was too young and dumb to realize how smart that advice really was. Because if you're older and you've been kicked in the teeth too many times and been rejected too many times, you're going to see that and say, oh, yeah, I'll try. It's still going to hurt my feelings, but I had not been rejected yet. So I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, I'll just do that. And so exactly what I did, I got the rejection letters, I framed them, I was excited about them. And his brilliant psychology was that just makes you work more and it just keeps, makes you keep putting stuff out there in spite of all the rejection. And I yeah. still use that strategy for the little kicks. I just keep working and I don't care because I, I, I you know, I've sort of taken his advice and I've, extrapolated it and I've come up with all these other rationalizations for why rejection is a good thing, you know? So anytime I get something like that, I take it as a positive. You know, if I get a hater online, that's a positive because in my mind, the ratio online is if you have one hater, that means you have 50 fans. Nobody has just one hater, and no fans. Yeah. You only start getting haters when you get more fans. So I see one hater and I'm like, that's great. I have 15 new fans, you know? So I use all this psychology to make me excited about, well, it's like, it's an, 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 it's an, it's a wonderful life when he runs up the stairs and he grabs the banister and yeah. kisses it at the end. That's what I want my life to be. I want to always be kissing the banister. That's a great thought process. And by the way, just to throw that in for writers, the copywriters and business owners that are listening to this, do that with testimonials of people's lives you've helped as well as the people that if you write an ad and it doesn't do well, still go ahead and be happy with that. Absolutely. Because it's a learning, you know, every failure is a learning experience and that's a, an occasion for celebration. Yeah.
it's and I do love that an occasional celebration. Just love that as a phrase. I'm gonna put that around somewhere. Um, one other thing that I do want to ask because this is kind of like my favorite question because we are gonna put you a bit on the spot. So it would be five books that you would recommend people read, and five movies that you absolutely enjoyed. And these can be about business, life, self development, stories, anything you want can go on these lists. But it's all yours. Now, are these five books that I love or five books that I would recommend other people read? Okay, let's do both. Five books that you love and five books people uh, should read and five movies that you just love as well. Sure. Okay, so I'll just do, I'll do the things I love first. So five books. Um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, Shadows of Our Forgotten Ancestors. So that's Jared Diamond, Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins. Um we by um, Zamiatin, uh, Zigdeni Zamiatin. Um, and I might change that to 1984. Mm-hmm. We was kind of the inspiration from 1984, but I'm switch to 1984. Yeah, I and um, for my last book, I got to go with uh, Of Mice and Men. Great so those are great books, love them, changed my life and uh, all that. Movies, five. Uh, Star Wars, it's gotta be on the list. Yep. Perfect movie. I'm going with uh, you, I'm guessing the original trilogy. Oh no, just the original Star Wars movie. A new um, hope. I did like The Empire Strikes Back, but after that, it all went downhill. Yeah, I was so, gonna say The Empire's kinda like <laughs> the pinnacle for me. Um, uh, the Man from Snowy River. Great movie. Hardly anyone ever puts that out there. That is. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Love it. Damn. Um, the Blues Brothers. Never get tired of it. Love it. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Love Great it. Movie. Never get tired of it. Um, and Raising Arizona. Love it. Never get tired of it. Yeah. I, isn't that John Goodman, if I remember correctly? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to go. And then watch. I will say that uh, Quentin Tarantino movies are kind of in a separate category for me. They're all amazing and beautiful and wonderful. Okay, but... we got we to gotta do a Tarantino list of your top five here. Because I've, like, Tarantino's done nine movies. Yeah. I will say seven of them are solid and two of them yeah, are Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're all amazing. Um, they're wait, all amazing. Actually, what, what's the two movies on your list that don't make this, the top seven, in your opinion? Two Tarantino movies that don't make the top ten? Yeah, like, in Tarantino's, like, because he's going to write ten movies and he's done, but he's done nine. So from the nine that he's done, what are the two that you would, I think it's universal amongst fans that we, we those are the two movies we're fans. I think uh, for me, it's quite simply um, Django Unchained and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, okay. So those are not the two that I had on my list. So there were two what I had, uh, The Hateful Eight and Jackie Brown. Those are the two that I can get to. Those, would, those two would be at the bottom of my list. Yeah. So th- that's what basically I'm saying that they're in the nine that he's done, they're in the bottom set. So there's a top seven for me. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. So I've got Once Upon a, Ho- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would probably be number seven. Django mm. is a little bit higher for me at number four. And then like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill 1 and 2 are like top three and then a fifth. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you oh, what you like. If you like his like action and violence or if you like his humor or I like for me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, was such an amazing nostalgic experiment and, and it was so unusually structured as a unity of time unity of place movie yeah and 
I remember that time and I remember um, Charles Manson and how big of a cultural touchstone that was. And I loved how he changes history. So Inglorious Bastards would be number three on my list, right under That's... Django Chain. Oh, wait, so you got, hold on. So you got, uh, wait, is this your top five list or is it your like shit list? We're just talking Tarantino top, top oh. list. Oh, this is your, so Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Django go your one and two? Yep. Oh, I thought they were at your bottom list. These were oh, no. movies. Oh, so these are, the, I was going to say, huh. No, so Hateful Eight and Jackie Brown are at the bottom end of my list. I should just clarify. Yeah, those are the bottom of my list as well. Thank God. Yeah, we, we, have, we, we have, yeah, that was a miscommunication on my part. Django, <laughs> give it up all day. Inglorious Bastards. Reservoir Dogs for me is still a great movie, but Pulp Fiction. Great movie. It. Pulp Fiction is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's a great movie. No question about it. Django for me, like, honestly... I've never been in a movie where I've laughed, cried, felt despair, anger, and joy to the extremes in such a short space of time. Yeah. I feel like the, the, the only way I can think of to describe it is all other movies are in three dimensions. Quentin Tarantino movies are in four dimensions. Yeah. Everything is just exact. Everything is elevated. Everything is more intense. Yep. The feelings are more intense. Like he really knows how to you know, conduct the audience as he puts it, like like an orchestra. And uh, Django is an amazing movie. One of the things that I love about that, and a lot of people don't know unless they've seen the Q23 documentary, um, was he actually, his mom was dating uh, an African-American man and he used to take him to watch black exploitation movies. And right. that's how, that's where all the dialogue comes from for him is like, it's all black exploitation movies. And yeah, how he was raised, uh, he was raised, you know, half in black culture, half in white culture, yeah. which is why he's so, so um, easy with the N word and stuff like that. Um, and I'm easy with that. Like, I don't think um, words should be forbidden. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it all comes down to, well, what's in your heart? You know, that's really intent. all that matters. It doesn't matter what words you use. Um, and, you know, that Django Unchained movie is a gift to uh, black people. Oh, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, like everyone freaking, I've never met anyone that didn't enjoy that movie. Such a great movie. And if they didn't, I'm like, I have to question your ability to enjoy yeah. a good movie. I mean, yeah. Uh, one of the lesser, no, one of the lesser, one of the things I love about *Inglorious Bastards* genuinely is that it's a movie that a gift is, to Jews. Yeah, and it's a it's a movie that is three quarters in another language. Yeah, it, it's only a quarter of that movie is in English. The rest is all like subtitled, it's, and it's beautifully well done. Yeah. Um, and we can I can literally harp about like Tarantino all day because I freaking love his work. But the five books that you would recommend? Curious on that before before. We oh, so the five now here are the five books I would recommend. Yes. Other people read. Your all your by the way, your books are not going on this top five list because your books are like on a separate list that are just recommended for sure. They're just like recommended regardless. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. So the five books that I would recommend are uh, Tribal Leadership. Um Slaughterhouse Five, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, uh, the Father of Spin, about Edward Bernays, amazing book. You know that book? I 
don't know that book, but I've got both Propaganda and Crystallizing Public Opinion by Edward Bernays. One of the greatest minds, in my opinion. Fascinating character. Very. Um, He's been coming up a lot lately this week for me. Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate Portrait. And uh, the reason I recommend that book is because it has these amazing essays at the end of it written by Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, children by Sally Hemings, the slave. They wrote essays about their life that are heartbreaking and amazing. And so every American should read that book, Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate Portrait. And then uh, for book number five, uh, I think I'm gonna do some crossover on my favorite books and books everybody should read. And, and that's 1984. Without a doubt. Nobody much. should not read, that book should not go unread by anyone. That, that is required reading because it's critical it really thinking. It's critical thinking. It's you need to have required that. for critical thinking, absolutely. Mm. And the power of propaganda, which is so important in this day and age, because it basically everything we see in here is propaganda. Somebody's got an agenda. Somebody's trying to pitch us something. And we go through life as fools thinking that people are trying to inform us or help us. <laughs> play fair. No, like some people want to play fair, but the reality is hardly anyone, if anyone, is really Everybody's out fair. for their own power and their own advantage. Yeah. Like... Even if they want to help you, by the we way. We need to grow up and realize that. Reality is reality and it's got to set in. Right. That's the truth. Yeah, and that book is like a slap in the face of reality. It wakes you, you up. Know, Orwell is such a genius. So amazing. Ahead of his time. and I love I, Animal Farm, too. It's more of a, just a fun book. Um, yes. 84 is like the, the important series yes. book. Yes, 84 is the series book. Animal Farm is the other one that I always recommend to people as well. Because they're, <laughs> they're some of my favorite books. I grew up on those. But Scott, this has been an absolute pleasure. If you can stick around for a little bit after, that would be superb. But guys, go check out howtowritefunny.com. Please go ahead and follow Scott on literally every single social media platform you can. Go check out theonion.com. Have yourself an amazing weekend. And always rate, review, and subscribe. And hey, if you're interested, head on over to greatestcopywriterlive.com, where as well we'll be hosting the new show coming in January or February 2022. So, Scott, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And, guys, have an amazing weekend. You're welcome. Take care, man. Bye.